I'm Chris Runge, and this is Study Hall. Welcome to Study Hall, the podcast dedicated to getting a little bit smarter about advertising. What's up, Study Hallers? So this Study Hall, we're going to talk about part four of Tim Wu's book, The Attention Merchants. Um, And this this chapter is basically about uh, what happens after we've built this big, sophisticated, beautiful attention-gathering machine? We started out with Ben Day in New York City and his newspapers, and we've gone all the way through the rise of the computers and the massive money injection that computer technology got from video games, um, the personal computer. Uh, and um, now we're looking at what we actually put through that machine. You know what? What we so we took this beautiful machine and what did we do with it? And it's it's kind of a depressing story the way Wu tells it. Although I think this is a this is the right opportunity for us to have a conversation, or me to do a monologue, I guess, about the morality of attention merchandising. We've been ignoring that. I've been ignoring that this whole time um, because I think this is such a great book about advertising and the history of advertising. But Wu, as I've alluded to along the way, has a theme running through this about what we've gained and lost as a culture as a result of the rise of the attention merchant class. And I think this is a good time to talk about it because Wu um, paints a pretty grim picture of what we've done with this amazing machine that we've built. So what did we do with it? According to Wu, we created a new pantheon, a new set of gods, and he, he uses the word apotheosis, which I had to, I had to go look up, but um, he uses the word apotheosis, which means the, um, the raising of an ordinary thing to the status of a deity. So, essentially, you know, this is all about the rise of celebrity culture and the Kardashians, sort of not to, not to completely bash the Kardashians, although they kind of probably deserve it. Um... And what it says about us. So what does it say that we built this sort of attention spaceship and then we used it to, I don't know, look at cat videos, right? What, what, is that, what does that mean? And is that right? And what are we all doing here if we're in the attention merchant business? What's, what's the sort of, what's our culpability or uh, our responsibility um, as professionals in this world? So... I'm going to go to chapter 17, which is called The Establishment of the Celebrity Industrial Complex. So this chapter is essentially about the rise of People magazine and an attempt by the attention industry to update the old, lighthearted escapism of, the mag- of magazines like Life and update them, make them relevant to the cult- changing culture, which is you know part of that old advertising and attention merchant giant dynamic of being a mirror uh, to the culture that it's talking into. So... That's part of the chapter, and then, then here Wu begin, really begins to bring out his theme of religion. As religion waned, did we need, as Wu argues, an apotheosis of something? So there is a need uh, in the human heart to have this dynamic of worship and the sort of feeling that your life has a purpose um, and that there's a plan somehow, and if religion's not going to fill that role... Uh, is it celebrity culture? I, I think he's going a little too far with this, but we'll get into that in a little bit. So let's get into the facts of the matter. So we open up in the early 1970s on a magazine in crisis. Life magazine is basically being forgotten, which is even worse than failing. 
is the point Wu makes. The, and the, the diagnosis Wu gives is it was kind of a 1950s um, take on life in America, as the magazine, as the title implies. And it, it was just getting to, you know, the 70s, you know, we've been through the 60s and all the assassinations and the, and the riots and, and that kind of sort of relentless American optimism was beginning to sort of try people's patience uh, and not and probably not feel credible anymore. So life was casting around for something else to do because they, you know, they needed to, they needed to get eyeballs somehow. So they bring in the, the editor, a guy named Hayes Haskell, goes back to the personality-driven roots of the company. And this is pretty interesting. It turns out Time's editorial sort of uh, take was always about the human story, right? Very much like Wu's own style. Um, and it takes that human-driven, that human interest story-driven approach and sort of passes it through a filter of needing to get people's attention in a new context, and it comes up with People Magazine, which was essentially, and they knew this at the time, a respectable version of magazines like Hush Hush. And if anybody's read James Elroy's awesome L.A. Noir series, there's a, there's a, he uses the, the device of one of these gossip mags, um, these sort of very low-end gossip mags to uh, advance the plot of those novels, and it's well worth a read just on its own terms. But that's what I'm talking about, these hush-hush type, type magazines. They sort of reached down into the cultural swamp, if you will, and pulled that model up, and they, they made a magazine out of it. And it was not well received. Um, they hired a guy named Richard Stolle, who had been a serious journalist at one time, he had been big in the civil rights movement, and he actually was the guy that convinced Abraham Zapruder to sell his film to Time Life. So Stolle was a serious guy and had, had been part of some serious accomplishments, but he, by the time Time came or time came to put him in charge of people, he, he had sort of, I guess, morphed into something else. Um, so Time Life, they, they put, they, Time Life put together people and they launched it, and this is what people like William Sapphire had to say about it. Um, first of all, he called it an insult to the American mass audience, and then he went on to say, When the world's most powerful publishing empire launched the first national weekly magazine to be started in 20 years, its executives must have asked themselves, What will compel magazine buyers to snatch our new magazine off the newsstands? What subjects are surefire audience grabbers at this point? Right. So there's the over-attention uh, gathering intent. Right. Sapphire knows it. Time Life knew it. That's what this game is about. Sapphire continues. By their choice of topics, the time people have given us a stop-action view of what they think most interests wealthy young people, their prime target audience. By their handling of these topics, the editors give us a, their frank assessment of that audience, a collection of frantic, tasteless fad cats. That's fad with a D, not fat, fat with a T. Fad cats. Deeply concerned with social climbing and intellectual pretension, panting for a look at celebrities and poses that press agents staged back in the 30s. People fails on the tawdry terms it has chosen. The sex is not sexy, the gossip is not current, the exploitation not with it. Great effort is needed to lift it up to superficiality. So, uh, ouch. Um, and that, that's gonna, that actually sets the tone for all reviews of um, the kind of attention gathering that Wu details in this part of the book. It's, it, it, you, these uniformly fall on. Uh, very hard ground when it comes to critical review, but it has. But um, <laughs> but people had a very successful launch, and we'll get to that in a little bit.
What does it mean that these, quote, terrible, unquote, media properties do so well? What's going on there? Um, so anyway, it had a very successful launch. And uh, this is what Donald Wilson, Times President of Publicity, said in his memoirs about it. Um, of all the develop new developments in the company, People was the only one I secretly deplored. I disliked People from the beginning. Like many other journalists, I too thought it was unworthy of Time, Inc., but in my capacity of head of public affairs for the company, I did my very best to support it in its, in its success. And then Wu says, the conscience of an attention merchant, with an exclamation point. Um, which I think is rather ironic, since Wu himself is an attention merchant uh, with this and all the other books he's written. So, watch uh, what pot you're calling black there, buddy. Anyway, um, so... Now we get to the end of the 70s with the launch of People, and we basically set up this sort of platform of celebrity culture. Like I said, the, the, the title of this chapter is Celebrity Industrial Complex. So this is the beginning of sort of the cultural gonorrhea that we catch um, through this very sort of lowbrow but highly effective means of attention gathering. And once that baseline is established, and Wu clearly blames people for this, um, although people wasn't the people wasn't the only magazine involved in doing this, you know, people was part of a tradition, like I said, of hush hush that kind of thing, and it was also and it also wouldn't be the only right. You just go to a newsstand now, and there's many many people imitators. Um, but the baseline had been set, and now celebrities were part of the way that we were gathering people's attention, and so that sets the stage for what Oprah Winfrey would do with that dynamic, which is the, the subject of the next chapter. So, on to chapter 18, the Oprah model. And this is where, so, this is where Oprah takes this culture of celebrity worship and she begins to do something with it that uh, really no one else had done and that made her into the woman she is today. So, <clears throat> and she was, the interesting thing about this chapter is how self-conscious she was as she did it. This was not really at any time an accident, um, except maybe very early. So. This chapter opens in Chicago when Oprah goes on a date with Roger Ebert um, at a hamburger place. And on that date, he told her that she needed to take control of her persona, so own it and really begin to shape and mold it. And whether or not you know she took his advice or it was something that was already on her radar screen, she promptly does this, and she starts using a combination of spectacle and empathy to build her image. And there's a, there's a really interesting list of stuff that she did uh, in the early days in Chicago to get people's attention, and it was, it was, it was pretty much spectacle. She'd have, you know, clan members on, or, you know, sort of stuff that, that would later be imitated uh, pretty widely to get sensation, and then she would also do, you know, the famous Oprah empathy, and that, that was a formula that sold. And, as I said, even back in the Spy Magazine days, who does a good job of marshalling this evidence, she was totally open about her ambition. And there's nothing wrong, I'm not saying there's anything wrong with that, but she, you know, this is a very carefully constructed persona, which I guess is no secret about Oprah Winfrey. I'm not uh, the biggest Oprah fan the world has ever seen, but um, I think that's I think that's pretty well understood by everybody. So, just like People Magazine, her program was hated by the chattering classes, like New York, New York Magazine, who basically called the audience losers and said they were idiots to identify with this fake TV friend. Um, uh, but she was a very it was a very successful model. Interesting implication for the chattering classes, right? I mean, they can chatter all they want, but the, the mass audience does what it wants without really much discussion of 
the objection of critics, which is something we really want to think about later at the end of this this study hall. We'll talk about that. And you know, and so like Ben Day, all those years ago, she spawned all these imitators, and you can just go through the list. There's Jerry Springer. There's Jerry Springer's former security guard. I can't remember that guy's name, but he's got his own show. Then there's Geraldo and on and on and on, Dr. Phil. Um, and Oprah sort of gets into this... Oprah... Wu uses Oprah to get into this theme of, of the substitution of true spirituality with this kind of fake spirituality because he very correctly, I think, and very powerfully sort of tar- starts to talk about Oprah's brand of spirituality that she's peddling, really, a kind of Christless Christianity called therapeutic deism. That's Wu's term. Um, with empathy for the suffering, a sense of struggle and joyful redemption, you know, it's kind of the arc of, of Christianity, the Christian narrative, but it's not, there's no, there's no Christ figure in it. It's just kind of this personal narrative where I guess you play the role of Christ, I guess. I don't know. I want to get excessively religious here, but... Um, that's the that's this the therapeutic deism she starts talking about, and she begins to garner this massive audience, and this becomes a very um, huge part of American culture. And she then turns this she then then she turns into this kind of interesting brand monetization model or attention monetization model rather. She didn't accept money for endorsements. But you can get an endorsement if you advertise with her. So it was kind of like the LBJ model. I don't know if, how much you guys know about Lyndon Baines Johnson, but I'm just going to digress for a second. LBJ owned a string of radio stations across Texas, or at least or, or his wife did. And if you wanted LBJ's attention, you just bought a bunch of advertising on his um, on his on his uh, radio station. And Oprah's kind of kind of worked like that, I guess, according to Wu. And she kind of went from on-show infomercials to the Oprah Book Club, and we know, you know, I remember when Cormac McCarthy's book, The Road, she reviewed that, or she was part of the book club. You know, McCarthy, who had been, you know, a cult writer for years, um, highly recommend any book he wrote, um, took off. And, and of course, and it's like night and day. I don't, I don't think The Road is even McCarthy's best book, not by a long shot, but it got made into a movie uh, and got a lot of attention. And then finally she ended up with O Magazine, right? Then we sort of then we sort of see Oprah kind of getting into the secret, um, and it's a bridge too far. She's jumped the shark to mix metaphors. Uh, mainstream religion kind of got onto her for that. She sort of took this therapeutic deism a little bit too far, and you know mainline Protestant Christianity started objecting and warning people about this. Um, then she endorsed Obama, and that alienated the Clinton supporters in her audience, and her audience was women over fifty. So. Um, that had an effect on her uh, popularity as well. And then she got into cable networks by launching her own cable network. And she mistimed the launch. Uh, she didn't account for the decline of cable, and her star started to fall. So Oprah's uh, career isn't maybe what it was, although she's still fabulously wealthy and friends with um, very powerful people. But her real contribution, as Wu points out, was that she established sort of the personal brand of attention merchandising and prove that it was a powerful way to garner attention and to monetize your um, behavior or celebrity. So, what would happen next? Well, that's the subject of chapter 19, the Panopticon, where attention merchandising goes into the personal lives of ordinary people and we start to get into this notion that we 
very interesting notion called the attention economy, which we'll talk about in a second. So we open up on MTV, which was, and I, again, something else I didn't know, but MTV had a super powerful business model. So what they would do is they would get free or cheap video content from the record companies. <laughs> Those of you that don't remember what a record company was, they used to be these incredibly powerful corporations that distributed music. And they had a lock on. They had a lock on music. If you wanted to, if you were a you know a band out in, you know, I don't know, some band in Birmingham somewhere, and you wanted to go worldwide, you had to go through these guys, and they were very very powerful, as I said, and very wealthy. And that's a that's a huge that's a whole story for another day. But um, they were supplying MTV because they recognized the power, the um, the merchandising power of MTV, the advertising power. That MTV had, they were supplying them with cheap video or free video, and MTV was turning around and making a channel out of that, and then selling advertising on the channel to a premium audience. Let's remember these are these are teenagers um, who live in families that are live with families, live in households that are wealthy enough to afford cable. So this was really great at first. They did amazing business, but like good business people. Uh, the MTV leadership was had their eye on what was going to happen when the novelty of videos were off, which it began to do. So they started looking for new content combinations to get those eyeballs, and they tried doing you know Saturday night live skits interspersed with the videos. They tried game shows, um, and they tried a retread of this old PBS documentary called The American Family, which was a show about a, an actual American family, not celebrities who had a TV crew move in with them for, you know, a, a, a term of months. And out of that experience came this programming that was all about the family's real life. Well, you know, Fred Silverman, who you may remember from past study halls or the earlier chapters of um, this book, the guy who really turned CBS programming around in the early 70s, he was he kind of got involved in this MTV project, and he got a hold of Mary Ellis Bunham. And she started uh, this idea called The Real World, which was going to be a soap opera, right? But it was too expensive for MTV, right? Because MTV was all about cheap content. So they took this soap opera idea of, you know, real life, real people, and they, they turned to uh, very inexpensive talent which meant a reality show. That's right. That's how we ended up with reality shows. The cast of the first Real World got paid $1,400, which was nothing even then, for seven months of work and got paid really in attention, right? And this was the beginnings of the attention economy. So if you go back and, and look at the Woo's chapter, and if you remember this, which I do, a lot of those early Real World kids got actual fame outside of the Real World and went on to launch careers um, such as they were not big careers necessarily, but they got into the they 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 were able to monetize this. The the money they made definitely didn't stop at the fourteen hundred bucks they earned for being on the show. So they really pioneered. These kids really pioneered this attention economy where you could you by getting attention you could turn that commodity into money. So the first few sessions of of the real world were very cool and it was very interesting. I mean, I remember when this was going on and it was it was really riveting television. But then they started you know problem with it is it gets to be it gets to wear out pretty quickly because there's only like a certain amount woo these are this is woo's 
evaluation of it, but I totally agree with it. There's only a certain amount of drama normal people are going to come up with every day, right? You're going to, you know, most thoughtful kind of half-intelligent people are not, you know, they're not going to be throwing pillows at each other. They're not going to, right? The social contract will hold and they'll behave themselves. So what they did was, and I remember this too, they started finding people who were um, either, you know, kind of crazy, or they would get people of such varying types that there would be these clashes that they could film and get. Um, and it worked, you know. Um, it worked pretty well. There were a few times where I think, you know, just, just thinking back on it and having done no research, I think MTV and the real world and some of their other imitators, you could knock them for putting people in dangerous situations or, like in the case of the real world, ignoring people with yeah, fairly serious mental health issues. And just kind of filming, you know, somebody with borderline personality disorder and and just enjoying, I guess, the effect those people had, the toxic, watching their toxicity spread um, and really not getting involved in it, as far as I know. Um, or, or like, you know, there were, and there's the, the survival shows where people have gotten into trouble physically, you know, and the survival shows just kind of shrug and, um, and maybe allow it to go on a little bit too long because they're interested in they're interested in the drama not you know patching up your leg so much so anyway like oprah like any successful attention gathering enterprise this this uh, <clears throat> this panopticon type program spawned a ton of imitators in fact i have a i have a, a close relative who's an actor and i remember talking to him when during the heyday of of reality shows and they were just taking all the work away from the actors. I mean, they just there was a time when reality shows were just a huge slice of of uh, network programming um, or cable programming, and it's it's actually not that far away in time. And that was the case. So you know the and those those imitators include the castaway castaways, the island, and then you get into freak shows like Jersey Shore and Real Housewives, which like I was talking about, like that's I don't know that kind of thing gets to be uncomfortable where you feel like you're watching either pathological people or people who are you know profoundly mentally handicapped or emotionally handicapped, and you're just kind of enjoying their pathology, which that eh, feels icky to me, but I don't know people seem to enjoy it. Um, so we end this chapter the Panopticon chapter, um, with TV still the reigning attention champ, but now we're dependent on this weird, this weird mirror effect that's delivered by brutal, invasive surveillance. So why participate? Why, why, why are people participating? And I alluded to this earlier, the dynamic had become that, you know, by participating in this, by allowing this invasive attention gathering into your life, you could get, get some of this attention for yourself and, and, and attention had become a commodity. And like any other commodity, it's convertible into cash. And so it functions as a kind of currency. And many, many people went scrambling after it, almost like a stack of 20s thrown into the air in Grand Central Station. I mean, there's just a kind of chaos there for a while. And we've ended up with, you know, and we've ended up with a kind of royalty of attention, uh, or sorry, we've kind of ended up with a royalty of these sort of panopticon people, right? Like the Kardashians are a good example of that, or the Shahs of Sunset. Um, they tend to be uh, not ordinary people, really. Um, you sort of, we sort of ended up in this place where we're watching sort of extraordinary people um, doing things that uh, most of us don't do or wouldn't do. 
and uh, we're kind of enjoying that as a kind of entertainment. And it, you know, and, and I think you know a lot of people feel it's icky. I don't. I, I kind of you know. I bristle a little bit when I when I read things like Sapphire's quote, or I read you know I I I see Tim Wu writing something kind of kind of shitty about a guy who's just trying to do his job and and help his company succeed. Uh, but I'm also kind of sympathetic to it, and I think you know just like everybody would be, uh, you know I don't like that the, I don't like that there's this class of people who basically have no other claim on our attention than that they're either you know, conspicuous consumers, extremely vapid, and we like to watch their vapidity, and we think that's hilarious, um, or or they do extreme crazy things that are that that we all kind of watch like a road accident. I don't I don't think that's great, but um, I also don't think we should necessarily um, ban it like cigarettes. And I guess that brings us to the that brings me to this sort of part of the show where I wanted to talk a little bit about the morality of um, this whole attention gathering thing because like I said I've, you know, I've been working on this series for uh, quite a few months now and you know, I've kind of studiously avoided getting into the morality of it too much so let me just dive into that right now. So I think you can't, you really cannot read the fourth section of Tim Wu's book without a real sense of disappointment. <laughs> You know, you, you watch this, you, you sort of watch the rise of advertising and the rise of attention gathering and this sort of, this very interesting organic process where an industrial society creates an information exchange network that sort of runs by capitalism and is in a very, in, in a lot of ways, highly efficient and, and very effective. That's pretty amazing. It's an amazing story. Um, and then you go, get to section four of the book and we just start pumping garbage through it. Like I said at the top, you know, we, we, we use this beautiful mainframe computer to watch cat videos, and it just seems like a huge waste. And, you know, and then I, I think, you know, uh, I think of the effect on the culture, and I keep going back to this thought about infobesity, which is Andrew Essex's great term. I think he coined it. Maybe he didn't, but infobesity, I think, is a great term because... What's happening here is we're consuming a ton of content, right? And a lot of it's garbage. A lot of this content is garbage. You know, I, I spend my time, sometimes I'll spend my time on, you know, like an hour surfing Reddit. And I just, you know, at the end of it, you just feel like um, kind of kind of mentally bloated, but also uh, no further along than you were when you started, right? You're not, you're not feeding your intellectual metabolism with anything that's going to, like, build any intellectual muscle, if you will, to continue metaphor and in f and <clears throat> not only that but if you consume enough of this sort of low I guess calorie dense but low intellectually low intellectual nutrition content you end up with a kind of I guess you could call it you know info diabetes where you're you're you know you're messed up you, you start to have these pathologies that have to do with you know wasting huge amounts of time and thinking lazily and you know kind of participating in I don't know participating in internet blood sports and all that kind of nonsense. And uh, I don't think that's great. You know, and I think, the, I think the, the best analogy that I could come up with while I was thinking this through was McDonald's. You know, I think 
you may remember when people tried suing McDonald's. I guess it was probably probably like ten years ago now. They tried suing McDonald's for making them fat, and of course the cases were thrown out and widely mocked. Um, and I think that it was a little bit, you know, uh, lacking in the the coverage of those cases lacked a little bit of nuance because you know you think about McDonald's, their food is delicious, um, but it's also really not that great for you. It's high in fat. Um, just for starters, high in salt, high in sugar, high in a lot of things that you shouldn't be eating. And if you, you know, consume the kind of quantities of McDonald's that I personally can consume, you're going to get fat real quick. And it's hard not to, it's hard not to do that. It's inexpensive. It's, you know, there's a lot of, there's a lot of good reasons to eat at McDonald's if you sort of subtract out the long-term, <laughs> long-term metabolic effects, right? Supersize me, right? So we're left with this we're left with this question, you know, whose fault is it that you, you know, that you're unhealthy from eating bad food? Is it the people that make the food? Is it you? Is it both of you? Or are you locked in some sort of weird codependent dance of shitty nutrition? It's probably the last answer. You know, you, you have to have some sense of agency and some willingness to control your behavior. Otherwise, uh, you're just going to sort of get pulled through life uh, like a piece of wood in a stream and bounce off of everything that you encounter uh, with no way to protect yourself or go where you want to go. And as far as working at McDonald's, as far as working in an industry that sort of creates this, I guess, dangerous to overconsume kind of product, well, it's an imperfect world. You know, we have to transfer information in a capitalist economy capitalist culture we need to transfer information the people that do that information transfer best are the people that make the products i.e. advertisers so it's an important it's an important industry it's an important role that we play in society i think it's a good place to spend a career and unfortunately yeah are there harmful harmful spillover effects yeah yeah there are harmful spillover effects and you know, you need to, and, and as a as an advertising person, you need to have some sense of personal agency. Don't just get pulled through life. Don't just get pulled through your career working for anybody who has uh, um, the cash to pay you. Yeah, that's a dangerous. That's a dangerous uh, way to behave, in my view. So I guess what I come down, I guess where I come down on this is you have to be careful and you have to work hard and you have to be alert and make good decisions. Otherwise, yes, you can. It is dangerous, and Tim Wu is right. There is a there is a sort of pernicious effect that that individual people can suffer, and that cultures as a whole can suffer. Which I guess then brings me to my my other the other point I wanted to make, which is more about Tim Wu. I think I think I'm being fair to him when I say this. We'll get into this maybe a little bit more in the last section of the book, but it's this kind of approach I notice him taking that you frequently see in the commentariat uh, or the chattering classes or whatever you want to call them. You know, there's a lot of... I, I, I detect in this section a bit of hand-wringing and a, and a little bit of patronizing of sort of... I don't know how to say this and not be a little... not, not offend people. This patronizing of people who aren't kind of Ivy League graduates. Um, I, I, I've encountered this really pretty much my entire educational career after high school, where there's this assumption that people who aren't highly educated are kind of um, 
stupid, really, for lack of a better term or for lack of a more politic term. And they're unable to consume things in a nuanced way, especially media, right? So I think one of the unexamined assumptions of, of Wu's analysis of, of American culture in section four of his book is that there's the people who can see through the madness and the, and the bullshit, and there's the people who kind of get sucked along by it, and the people who get sucked along by it are the vast majority of the country, the poor souls who don't have the intellectual pedigree. Um, and I don't think Wu really believes this. I think he just kind of picked it up by accident. I've seen the guy talk on YouTube and stuff. He doesn't sort of come off as that kind of person, but... Nevertheless, you should be on, on guard for this attitude. And, you know, my take is people, all kinds of people from all walks of life, consume American culture with a great deal of sophistication, surprising amount of sophistication, and a lot of nuance. So that there's not, you know, the idea that there's a huge population of people just sitting slack-jawed on the sofa being bombarded with... Um, you know, garbage culture. I think that's easy to overstate. I'm not saying it doesn't happen. It's, it certainly does, and you can and you can see, you can see it. You know, everybody, you all live your lives and encounter people in them, and yeah, there's people who are like that. But I think there's a much larger population of people who are much more nuanced in their consumption of culture and consumption of advertising, and are able to make a distinction between, you know, I don't know, watching a show that's kind of a guilty pleasure. And uh, or consuming advertising, uh, and ha- not not really allowing it to degrade their intelligence or degrade their not really intelligence. That's not the word. Not allowing it to degrade their ability to think critically and behave rationally and in their own interest and in a way that's sort of constructive for society. I think that's. I think. I think the latter group of people are much more common than than. Many commentators, and I don't. Um, Wu kind of, I think he kind of falls into this, falls into this trap in the in the fourth section of the book of thinking that there, you know, people are just helpless against this terrible power of advertising, and they're not able to consume things um, in a nuanced way. So that's what I really my one criticism of this, and the idea that that advertising has replaced religion, I think, is kind of tainted by that approach. I think we certainly are, you know, a, a very secular society. I don't think too many people would argue with that. Although there are real pockets of of religious uh, cultures that are thriving, you know, all across America, all across the world. So you know, I I I sort of have a quibble based on no research. I can't really cite any facts and figures. Um, but it, it does it doesn't really seem that that religion has fallen away. I think that's I think that's kind of overdone. I think I think organized religion, you know, might be under under certain kinds of organized religion might be losing adherence. But that's I really I would argue that's their own fault. Um, that's not a problem with religion or spirituality. Not to get excessively um, religious. This is not a this is not a podcast about religion or morality, but. Uh, I think he kind of overstates that. I don't really buy that advertising has advertising has supplanted religion. I totally buy that um, advertising uses many of the same techniques that religion does. It it talks about fulfilling holes in your life with products. Um, 
rather than rather than religious figures or religious doctrine. But yes, is advertising the business of identifying sort of lacks and and needs and wants? Yeah, of course it is. And is it a, is it the business of addressing those things and offering a solution? Yes, absolutely. Is religion similar? Yes, absolutely. Has advertising supplanted religion? Eh, don't know. Don't think that that's. I think that might be just a little bit overdone. And I also think this, and again, you know, I also think this idea that people are just uh, slack-jawed victims of, or subjects of, you know, an advertising assault, I think that's a little simplistic. I think people are much more sophisticated. Just ask anybody who's, I mean, we'd be a lot more successful, actually, if people were just slack-jawed subjects of our evil mind control. But you, you know, make up your own mind. That's one of the great reasons that, that's one of the reasons to read this excellent book by Tim Wu is he does get at that and it is, it is very worth, uh, it is very worth a think. So with that, I'm going to end this study hall and uh, we will see you guys next time. Congratulations, you just got out of study hall. I want to thank Henry Veloso for the music and say sorry about the editing. I did it myself. Study hall is sponsored by Douglas and Rugby, an advertising and marketing consultancy. See you next time.